Okay, look, I'm going to get straight into this or else I know that I'm going to sit here for the next half an hour and try and record a good intro. Uh, So I'm going to put that to one side and just start talking and see what happens. My name is Sean Spooner. Hello. This is episode number one of Life and Lessons. Uh, And this, this is my attempt at podcasting. And I'll talk a little bit more in this episode about what this podcast is going to be. But confusingly for this first episode, I'm going to do... Uh, something a little bit different. Well, I'm actually going to do two things a little bit different. The first is I want to talk just briefly about what this podcast is and what this podcast is going to be and the reasons for me doing it, particularly now in life. Uh, And then secondly, to give the 99.9% of you listening who don't have a clue who I am a little bit of context. In this episode, I'm going to try and summarize the last 23 years of my life in Oh, I don't know, about half an hour. So we'll see how I get on with that. But anyway, um, to begin with, why a podcast and why now? And also, why is it called Life and Lessons is is probably a good question. So let me address all of that. The first is that, truthfully, I've probably wanted to do a podcast for the last year or perhaps 18 months. Uh, But it has never felt like the right time. I've never felt like I have been in a place in life where... Uh, Either I know myself well enough or I feel like I have enough to talk about to actually warrant a podcast. Like, sure, I could sit in front of a microphone and talk once a week, but I've never felt like in the past I've been at a point in life where I have anything worth talking about. Whereas I feel like I'm slowly approaching a point in life now where that's changing. And so I feel like it would be good to document that. Uh, Sure, for other people, but honestly also quite selfishly for myself in the future. Uh, So that's the first reason. And uh, the second reason is kind of related to that, which is that if you follow me on any social media, you'll know that I like to learn and I like to share the things that I've learned, right? And that, if any of my old teachers are listening, will probably come as a massive surprise because I fucking hated school and the only thing I didn't do in school is learn. But since probably in the last, I don't know, three years, stepping away from school, what was it, seven years ago now, uh, but in the last three years, I've really found a new love for for learning. And I mean that both literally and tangibly in the sense of picking up new and interesting books and learning from them, but also in the sense of just going through shit in life, going through personal things, going through business challenges and growing as a person and just kind of shaking up the dust and seeing what happens afterwards and seeing what I learn from that. If you follow me on social media, you'll know that I really like to, and I probably sound like David Brent half the time when I do it, but I I like to share things that occur to me that life has taught me. Um, And, you know, maybe other people get value from it, but as my Twitter bio says, I'm kind of just tweeting advice at myself. And in a way, this is what this podcast is going to be. It's going to be me uh, sharing my learnings with myself, sitting in a room once a week for half an hour or an hour or whatever it happens to be, and just seeing what comes out, seeing what I think I have learned this week. And look, if other people find value in it, then happy days. The, The third reason is actually to go back to what I spoke about before, which is that Uh, this period in life for me is particularly interesting. So I'm purposely recording this episode one week before my 24th birthday. And that's because I want the the second episode, the first real episode to go out around the time of my 24th birthday. And here's the reason for that. I have been running businesses now for about 10 years. And we'll go into in more detail in a minute what those businesses were and so on. But That means that my idols in life have always been young people with businesses, right? And I've said this for years. People who know me will say that I've said this for years. The people I've idolized over the years and looked up to and appreciated the work of over the years, the age 25 in their lives seems to be this magical number. Now, I'm sure from the from from an internal point of view in their lives, they probably wouldn't see it that way because everybody has their own reality. But from the outside looking in, I'm talking about people like Jamal Edwards of SBTV. I'm talking about people like Adnan Ibrahim of Car Throttle. 
following those guys and others, following their stories. It always seems to be around the age of 25 that young people in business seem to hit their stride, you know. They've made a lot of the early mistakes that we all make. They've uh, learned the lessons from them. They kind of know who they are by that point and they're ready to just go and get it. And so in a week's time, when I record the first proper episode of this, I am going to be one year away from the age that I've always seen as a magical number. And so here's the thought process of this, right? The, The podcast is called Life and Lessons because frankly, I'm not old enough, I'm not experienced enough, I'm not any of the above enough to teach real life lessons. That's fact, right? But I'm certainly old enough to be going through life and I'm certainly old enough to be learning lessons. And so as I move towards my 25th birthday in a year's time, for the next 52 weeks, I want to document my life once a week, share what's been going on in my life and communicate the lessons that have come from that to see if 25 is an interesting age. Maybe 52 weeks from now we'll be sat here in the same position and nothing would have happened. But I think that the next 52 weeks, the next year is going to be interesting. And so that's my pledge here right now to continue this weekly podcast for at least the next 52 weeks, once a week um, until I'm 25. And so that's that. That's what this podcast is. I hope you could make some sense of that because frankly, like I said at the beginning, that was not scripted because I know that if I scripted that and tried to, you know, rework it, I would be sat here all night uh, trying to get that out. So there we go. Right. So the second half of this podcast is I want to give anybody listening who's started from the beginning, who wants to follow this journey for the next year, I want to give you a little bit of context about who I am because, you know, there are probably seven people on the planet who know me in this level of detail. So what I'm going to try and do is tell you the last 23 years of my life, at least the highlights as I remember it, as quickly as possible. Um, (laughs) Just before I begin, I was thinking when I was recording this, sorry, when I was writing this, like making notes, that it it seems like I'm about to give away all of my password reminders all at once here. I promise you that, you know, the name of my first pet and my mother's maiden name and anything else that I talk about in here they're not my actual password reminders so just please please don't try and log into my accounts it's not going to work but anyway look here is the last 23 years of my life as i remember them as quickly as possible so on the 11th of december 1995 i was born in northampton general hospital uh, and that was where i lived in northampton for about the first two years of my life and uh, i suppose it's good news that i don't remember And I don't have any stories from that entire period of my life, right? My life was normal enough for the first two years to the point where I know nothing about it. And I see that as good news. So anyway, when I was two, I think it was just before I turned three, actually, uh, we as a family, so my mum, my dad and my brother, Ashley, we moved to Corby. And that was because my dad had just taken a new job as a caretaker in a school in Corby. The school was called Danetome and the job came with a house and so there we were in our new house in Corby as a family and my first memories actually revolve around that house because when I was two um, I say memories that's a strong term I kind of remember this I've kind of been told this but run with me anyway when I was two due to some sort of paperwork issue or misunderstanding down the line or whatever I actually joined reception so the thing that you go into before year one I actually joined that a year early for a few days Uh, And I remember, or at least I remember remembering hating it, right? Crying constantly, not wanting to be there, just making an absolute fuss and a racket and not fitting in until a few days down the line, somebody must have bloody looked at the paperwork, looked at my birth certificate, I don't know, and they realized actually I was a year too young to be there. So I got sent home. I stayed there for a year, as every normal two to three year old did. And then one year later, I came back and joined reception with everybody my age. Uh, So there we were. My dad worked next door in the junior school, and that was the school where my older brother went to. And then my mum worked in the infant school as the dinner lady at the time, so everyone was just very close, right? The house was there, the school was there, my family was there. It was all very cosy. And that's all I really remember about the infant school, naturally, right, because I was so young. But in 2003, 
Uh, I went across the car park to the bigger school and I joined Dane's Home Junior School. And those four years between years three and six, at least in my mind, thinking back now, they can be split quite comfortably into two halves. So the first two years, I remember parents' evenings being good. You know, my dad would come home from the parents' evening and he'd say, yeah, all the teachers said you were great, you listen, you do your work, and so on and so forth. And then the second two years, so years five and six, where I distinctly remember parents' evenings being a bit of a struggle. And that's because around around year five, although this seems young, around year five, I kind of switched off to education ever so slightly. So I'm I'm not... I'm not talking to the point where I was like a trouble kid, like I was well behaved and I wasn't rude and so on. But even back then, I had this this kind of feeling around some lessons. So not things like English and not things like maths, although I fucking hated maths, but around some lessons that like this isn't important, right? There were just some things where I thought I do not need to know this. So I kind of went into this weird obsessive phase where I would spend my time looking at and focusing on other things so it could be like bearing in mind I'm still really young at this point but like collecting little toy cars or collecting key rings or other things where I could kind of pour my attention into something that wasn't school because you know other than going to football practice for a few weeks uh, which is another funny story for another time other than that uh, and school there wasn't really much to do at that age right uh, and I think that uh, what what I'm getting at here is that when I wanted to stick to something, even though it was something really trivial and unimportant at that point, even at a young age, like when I had my keyring obsession, I was fucking obsessed. When I wanted to do something, I, I really went for it even back then, right? Uh, and so this is kind of where the first weird story comes in. Now, I forget the exact age I was, but back when I was in junior school, so we're talking really quite young, uh, I started a basketball team Uh, now picture this for just a moment at the time I was like super 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 short and super skinny I mean shit I'm still skinny right now but like super short right the exact opposite to to the kind of stereotypical basketball playing kid you can imagine but weirdly I was into basketball and I remember going to a you can't call it a youth club but we'll call it a youth club because it's the, the closest comparison I can give this like youth club basketball training thing on a Wednesday evening for a few weeks. And I, I really got into it. I really enjoyed it. I'd found something that I was good at. But then it ended literally maybe six weeks into that youth club. The basketball training man, I can still remember his name. His name was John. Uh, he he stopped going to the thing. It was like a short term thing. And so I was hooked on basketball, but had no way to practice it, had no way to play it, had no way to enjoy it. My friends had no way to have structure around it. Uh, So I got my friends together, Brendan and Nathan and Chris and a few others. And I said, right, we're a basketball team now. And that was that. We, We had training sessions and we ran raffles door to door on the estate where we lived to to generate money to buy things like training equipment and kits and we attended little events around the town and like had a float at the carnival and did all of these things um although it has to be said we never actually competitively played a game because it turns out there weren't many other groups of nine-year-olds kicking around wanting to play as a basketball so we were a basketball team which holds a record of zero games played but anyway that was when i was between say uh, nine and 11 years old, but I think it taught me something. And it was actually nothing to do with basketball. I mean, I liked basketball and for a time I was okay with it. But long after my obsession with trying to be a basketball player faded, I still loved the work. I loved the the organizing of things and the writing of letters and trying to make money and folding up local businesses. And I liked the feeling of having my own thing. But then I started secondary school and my friends and I from our basketball team went our separate ways and it just kind of stopped. But it had planted a seed in my mind by that point. So anyway, like I say, I went off to secondary school and the secondary school I joined was called Brook Weston. Now, for anybody who's listening who happens to be from Corby, you're either going to completely agree or completely hate me for what I'm about to say. But Brook Weston was kind of the good school in Corby at the time, to the point where 
to get in, you do a couple of tests on a Saturday when you're in year six. And one of them, I think, is an English test. And the other is to do with like logic and reasoning. And although it's my understanding that Brooke Weston actually takes a cross section of the students based on their performance from those tests. So it's not like you have to be quote unquote smart to get in. Uh, it still felt like a big thing to get in. And because of the reputation that Brooke Weston had, uh, I still remember thinking that my dad was joking with me, lying, perhaps, the morning when he came up to my bedroom with the acceptance letter and told me that I was going to Brooke Weston. So that just gives you an idea of, I guess, the kind of reputation, at least I thought, that school had in the town at the time, right? And so there I was on the first morning of year seven, still very short at this point, riding my massive and definitely oversized mountain bike from Dane's home down to Brook Weston with my friend Colin. Uh, and we get there, and I still remember that first morning really quite well. We all sit in the big assembly hall, and our principal was called Miss Stringer, Trish Stringer, uh, and she started talking. And Brook Weston has this weird approach, and there's this quote, right, that I always remember where they say, there are no rules here only expectations so no rules only expectations and that lasted for about 12 seconds until we were told a big list of rules so no chewing gum and no eating outside of the restaurant because they called their cafeteria thing a restaurant and that you should always have your top button done up and that your tie needs to look perfect at all times and no phones and no bags to be taken around during the day they need to be kept in the lockers and so on but remember no rules just expectations. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's fair to say that that was a big list of expectations for these sheepish 11-year-olds who were all sat in that room. But when I look back at Brook Weston, and particularly those first few years, uh, I'm weirdly thankful for the fact that it was quite strict because certainly speaking for myself here, but I'm sure a lot of other people, I think we kind of needed that. I think we kind of needed that structure, which perhaps would have been otherwise missing in other schools. I don't know. So anyway, there I was. Uh, my form was 7S uh, and I was surrounded by a bunch of people I didn't know. But then everyone was in that situation, right? So I quickly became friends with my little group. There was me and Matt and Connor and Jack and Brandon. And everything was fairly uneventful to the point where I'd even go as far to say that the only thing I can really remember about those first two years at Brook Weston was getting completely bollocksed in the second week by an art teacher for not having a pencil case. Like, to her at the time, that was the absolute worst thing I could possibly have had the cheek to have done, to have turned up at her class without a pencil case with, like, a pencil and a pen in and so on. And literally just that, getting screamed at, is the only thing I remember from two years. So that that says a lot. Uh, which, by the way, I, st I still haven't owned a pencil case since that day, so some things never change. Uh, but yeah, other than that, first few years were uneventful. Uh, the only kind of feeling tone that shines through from those first years at Brook, weirdly, is one of feeling like I didn't have the things that other people had. So between the estates in Corby and some of the more, let's call them some of the more affluent villages from as far away as 15 miles away, Brook Weston has quite a big catchment area. And so that means that there are quite a mix of people from quite a mix of financial situations, at least it appeared to me at the time. Uh, and it's funny because I remember having a conversation literally only a couple of months ago with an old teacher of mine from back in those days. Uh, and I was telling her that I always had this feeling that I didn't quite have the things that other people had. But she said that that actually never registered with them. So they from what I understand, have almost like a, a list of kids that should be on their radar who perhaps don't have enough money, right? And I think the reason I never fell onto that list is because even at that age, I was quite self-aware. Um, so you can take the silly things like at Christmas when everyone was talking about their new iPhones and designer watches in those early years at Brook, and I'd almost have to almost have to make up what I got for Christmas, if I'm being honest. And it's not because I didn't get presents. Of course I fucking did. It was because all of my friends, either telling the truth or fronting, were claiming to have got hundreds, if not thousands of pounds worth of presents. And I just felt like I didn't fit in, right? And at that age, I, you, anyone, everyone, we do what we can to fit in. Uh, but then there were also less trivial things. Uh, so like every year, 
the price of things like breakfasts and lunches would go up. So the amount of money that I was given in year seven to last me a week for food, of course, didn't stretch in year nine, two years later, because it had gone up by some reasonably high percent. So the money just didn't cover it. But I never told my parents that because, and it's really weird to think back at this, because like I keep saying, I was so young, but I could see that they were working every hour they could, both in full-time jobs, both doing their absolute best. And I already knew, or at least thought I knew, that the money that they were giving me for lunch, which wasn't cheap, by the way, was was a stretch. And it was stretching them even further. So the last thing I wanted to do is come home with a letter saying, actually, you need to give me even more money this year and even more money next year. And so that meant that there were days and days on end sometimes where I'd sit in school and go without lunch. Uh, not, not that I ever told anyone that, uh, even to this day, actually. I think, truthfully, other than a handful of people, like a very small handful of people, saying this out loud into a microphone right now is probably the first time I've ever said that. And um, I'm not really sure what my point is here, but I think that should just give you a sense of those early years in Brook and how they felt and the shape of my memories from the time. Because I think that as we get further into uh, the next few years of this story, it might explain some of my actions. Uh, But anyway, uh, I think it was around year nine when I met a friend called Lewis, Lewis Porter. And weirdly at the time, me and Lewis hated each other. We didn't know each other, but we hated each other. And saying that out loud now, 10 years later, makes no sense whatsoever. But I suppose the world is a very different place to 13 year olds. So anyway, here was me and Lewis and we didn't like each other. But then one day we got talking. And I think we actually got talking over some like weird, cheap Chinese phone that Lewis had bought from eBay, which had like a touchscreen and two SIM card trays. And back in the day, then that was like the craziest thing in the world. So we got talking about that. And we, we, you know, we spoke about this and that and the other. And we realized that we're both actually interested in business or perhaps more specifically, we were both interested in making money. And so whilst everyone else was focused on learning about longshore drift and the periodic table, Me and Lewis would spend as much time as possible plotting and talking about little business ideas and trying to turn some of those into reality. And we had a couple of stabs at it. And the first was a freebies website that failed miserably because we had just discovered the world of affiliate marketing. And so we realized that we could make money by giving away things for free. Now, remember, this was back in 2009 when the internet was a very different place. And so there we were at every possible opportunity on every possible platform, trying to get people to order free O2 SIM cards from our little website. And with that project, we probably made 50 pounds tops. And actually, I think I'm being a bit generous there, but let's say 50 quid. We didn't make any money, right? But then we struck on an idea that seemed to have legs. At the time, Corby was a town going through a lot of change. Back in the 1980s, Corby, which was based almost entirely around a big steelworks, hit rock bottom. When Corby steelworks closed, it came with mass unemployment and problems which the town didn't really recover from until about 10 years ago. That was the time when me and Lewis were having this idea, right? So bear that in mind. But after decades of bad luck, things started to change for Corby. There was a lot of inward investment into the town and redevelopment. There was a new shopping centre and a new swimming pool and a new civic hub and the reopening of our train station and new schools and businesses and so on. Uh, And for, you know, 14 year olds in the town who have so far known their town to be frankly quite shit and boring, this was an exciting time. And me and Lewis felt that these positive news stories weren't actually being told by the local newspaper, which only had a little small town, sorry, a little small office in the town, right? We thought that somebody could be doing it better. And actually, perhaps naively, we thought that we, two 14-year-old kids, could do a better job. And so we set about doing just that. We created a print magazine all about Corby, and then we creatively named it Corby Magazine. And so at the time, we were just 14 years old, but we somehow managed to write and design a magazine, to find businesses willing to advertise in it and trust us with their money, to find printing companies willing to help us produce this thing, and to find hundreds of local businesses who would let us put the magazine into their shops and salons and waiting areas to be picked up and read. And so Corby Magazine was born. And for the first few issues, not a whole lot happened. We were growing, but 
we were only making a few hundred pounds per issue and nobody really took us seriously. And looking back, I can't blame them. It wasn't the best magazine. We both looked very young. Like I keep saying, I was very fucking sure at the time. Very squeaky voice, looked very young. People just didn't think we were the real deal. They thought this was either a school project or we had some like rich parents helping us out or whatever. People just didn't think we were all that. But then a few months into the business, me and Lewis happened to bump into a man called Ian. Ian McGregor. And Ian was at the opening of the Corby Cube, which is a new building in the middle of the town. Uh, that's like council offices and a theatre and so on. So we bumped into Ian at the opening of the Corby Cube. Uh, and he happened to ask us what we were doing there because we were two school kids in the middle of the school day in school uniform, cutting about as if we were journalists interviewing the leader of the council, interviewing the mayor and so on. And so we explained and we told Ian our story and about the magazine and the business. Uh, And what we didn't know at the time is that Ian, this man that we had bumped into, had actually been a broadcaster and in PR for many, many years. And he had just moved to Corby to continue running his own PR agency. And he had just bumped into his perfect story. And so kindly, Ian agreed to tell our story to the world free of charge. The story of two kids starting a business and trying their best. And I think it's fair to say that everybody involved at the time thought that this would be a local quick press story that lasted for a week and then died. But not quite. Sure, the local newspapers, the local radio stations did pick up on the story as we thought. But then it started to spread. We had regional outlets running the story, including the BBC Look East 6 o'clock news. And then national newspapers and national radio stations got involved. We were interviewed live on Drive Time on BBC Radio 2 and over in Ireland on RTE Radio 1. And we even had a segment on a national BBC Breakfast news. So suddenly, overnight, our small town story was being spoken about. And I think in a weird way, Uh, All of that press coverage and all of that attention and all of those adults telling us to continue, adults telling us that this was okay, gave us permission, for want of a better word, to really go out and do this whole business thing. Because understandably so, our school wasn't massively supportive, right? The, The incentives for them to encourage two kids to not focus on their GCSEs and run a business just weren't there. So whilst our school wasn't massively supportive, Up until the point when we had all of this press, we didn't have any real adult voices of support behind us. So we didn't really feel that this business thing was an acceptable path in life. Now, I think what's important to bear in mind here is that although this was only 10 years ago, this was way before the days when everyone and their dog wanted to be an entrepreneur. uh, And when cultural figures like Gary Vaynerchuk hadn't yet made the idea of running a business glamorous. So in the minds of our teachers and in the minds of our friends' parents, we were doing it all wrong. Because whilst their kids were getting ready for their GCSEs, me and Lewis were ignoring education and we were out on the streets going door to door trying to sell advertising to businesses for this weird little side project, right? We were doing it wrong. We were the weird kids in that sense. But anyway, Corby Magazine ran for eight issues until our GCSEs came around. And immediately after his GCSEs, Lewis moved to London. And so Corby Magazine came to an end. And so there I was, at 16 years old, feeling a bit lost uh, without a business. So I did what any lost and confused 16-year-old who has an interest in business would do, and I applied to go on the BBC's Young Apprentice. Now, for anyone who's ever applied to go on that programme, you will know that the first step in the process is an online form, a really, really long online form. And so you fill in that form, and then you wait. And I think almost everybody who fills in the form, so long as you fill it in sensibly, you get invited to take part in an audition. So my audition was in London and it goes a little something like this. You walk into the production company's offices and you're shepherded through to a massive room, huge waiting area where everybody's purposely sat awkwardly far apart from each other. So you're not actually sat next to anybody to talk to them or to look at them or to get a sense of them. Right. And then a silence. Nobody talks. Nobody's allowed to talk. It's just silence. Uh, and then 12 people at a time, you're, you're moved into a group of 12 and you're taken into a side room where you stand in a line, one next to the other, next to the other. And you've got about 30 seconds to look at the producer who stood in front of you and tell your story, right? 
And so you've got all these people, they're like big stories claiming they run multi-million pound businesses and their fancy suits and their expensive shoes. And then there's me in like a 12 pound Primark jumper with a hole in it and some dodgy jeans. Uh, and I tell my story. And of the 12 people in the room in my group, I get taken out of one door and the other the other 11 get taken out of another door. And so I think, oh shit, was I really that bad? Like I'm the only one who didn't get through. And so you're, you're walked with a runner to a lift and they say well done you've got through to the next stage i'm going to put you in this lift you're going to go up one floor and then you'll be produ- you'll be met by another producer and so what happens is you go up a floor and you meet with a producer on the program and they've kind of done a bit of research into that online form that you filled in and done a bit of digging and they uh they they grill you basically like what you see in the interview stage of the program you get grilled And if you pass that test, if you pass that step, you go up another step, another step, both literally and figuratively, you go up another floor onto the next floor. And then you're interviewed in a small little meeting room with uh, Tim Campbell, who's the man who won the first series of The Apprentice here in the UK and some sort of more senior producer. And again, that is just constant grilling. They look very unhappy. They're trying to make you feel uncomfortable. They're trying to trip you up and they're seeing how you fare under pressure. And then if you get past that, once again, you go through to the next stage, which is a screen test where you basically talk on camera whilst being interviewed by the series director. Uh, And that screen test actually is the when the announced, sorry, when the candidates get announced each year and they release that video of them saying really big statements like I bleed ambition. I am, I am business. Lord sugar doesn't have shit on me. Uh, You say all of that stuff on your first audition, right? So they get you really riled up and really worked up to really prove your worth. And then they chop that video up and make it your announcement video. So anyway, you do that and you go away. And if you're successful, which I was, you get called back to a second day of interviews in London and that's it. I won't go into too much detail here, uh, but that's interviews and essays and arguments and building IKEA flat pack furniture and all sorts. And so you leave that day and you have absolutely no idea what's going on until a few weeks later when I got a phone call for a final meeting in London. And at this point, you know that you're down to, let's say, the final 20. There's 12 on the show. So you're down to roughly the final 20, but you don't know if you're on or not. And so you go to London and you meet with the series director and the executive producers and the production company. And they basically say, look, you're through all of the tests now. It's now a question of casting. If if, if you fit the casting, if if you're one of the people that we want on, you're on. If not, don't worry. You've done as well as you can. It's now at this point, nothing personal. It's just down to the process. And then you meet with a psychologist who basically checks that you are uh, mentally sound and prepared and aware of what you could be walking into and then you leave and it's silence and you wait a few days and my phone rings and it is Lawrence the executive producer on the other end and he's got this kind of soft voice on the kind of voice when somebody phones you and they're about to give you bad news or let you down it was that kind of voice and Lawrence said Sean uh, we want you on the series but take 24 hours have a think about it and then let us know. If you want to come on, drop me an email. If not, no worries. There's somebody waiting to take your place. But in 24 hours time, we need to know whether you're coming on Young Apprentice. And so you say yes. And then you're thrown into this weird world. So you're first of all taken to London to film your entrance shots. So that's like when you're walking down a train platform with a suitcase looking deadly serious. Uh, and also you film your exit shot, which is where you're walking out of quote unquote the boardroom having been fired getting into alan sugar's car driving off and so on and then before you know it it's a few weeks later it's some mad early hour of the morning and you're in the back of a taxi from a central london hotel out to the studio in west london where the series is filmed and if you've ever watched that program it is the weirdest thing walking in that studio because you walk through this kind of this open shutter and you're in a warehouse is this the best way I can describe it. It feels like a warehouse and you have a little bit of makeup done and you're briefed and you're told, okay, once you're ready, walk around this corner through this curtain and you'll be in the boardroom. And you're thinking like, how on earth am I about to be in the boardroom? We're in a bloody warehouse, but you walk through the curtain, you turn the corner and you're very much in that TV set, exactly as it looks, exactly as it sounds with the receptionist sat there 
uh, and it's, it's just the weirdest thing. The phone rings, Lord Sugar will see you now. Uh, you walk through to the boardroom where there are easily double figures, numbers of cameras pointing on you. It's amazing how many cameras they can hide in that place. And then in walks Lord Sugar. And I won't go into too much detail about my time on Young Apprentice because I could probably make an entire episode, if not series, about the inner workings of that program. But all you need to know is this. I lasted for two weeks. I had just run a publishing business and I got fired on a publishing task. So having been told by Lord Sugar on national TV, watched by something like four million people that I wasn't very good at publishing, I went on to run another publishing business. This time around, it was a magazine called Magnate. Uh, and Magnate was based in London. It was essentially the Corby magazine business model, just kind of on steroids, right? It was it was a bigger version of Corby magazine, and it was plonked in one of the most competitive markets on the planet. And I was a 16-year-old kid. And it was also at the same time as launching Magnate that I went back to school for my A-levels. Uh, not that I spent much time there, but Although I always knew that I wasn't going to go to university, I weirdly always felt this kind of contradictory pressure that I needed to complete years 12 and 13. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't to any real end. Like I say, I know I wasn't going to university. I just felt that I didn't have anything to leave school for yet. Like people who leave school at 16, they get a job and then they work that job. And that's kind of that. And I wasn't ready for that. So almost to buy myself time. I went back to years 12 and 13. And so here I was living in two very contrasting worlds and it led to some weird situations because on the one hand, I'm running a magazine in London. And on the other hand, I'm sat 100 miles from London in a classroom learning, learning about spreadsheets. So that led, like I say, to some weird situations like sat in an IT class whilst emailing to confirm a cover interview with Sir Richard Branson. Uh, and spending every moment that I could firing out sales emails whilst my teachers weren't looking. But I wasn't alone. I ran Magnet with two guys who I met over the internet. There was Zach, who was the business development director, and Johnny, who headed up our website and all things digital. And between us, from three bedrooms in opposite corners of the country, we were trying to grow this publishing business in the shadow of some massive competition. And in fairness, we did all right. Magnet ran for four issues in print, and in that time, we hit some decent milestones. Each issue, we were printing and distributing thousands of copies of the magazine across London to commuters at key train stations and in hundreds of office and residential sites throughout the capital. And we bagged some good interviews with, like I said, Sir Richard Branson, Wretch Free 2, Jamie Lang, Jamal Edwards, Connor Maynard, Stuart Broad, and so on. And over the course of Magnate, uh, we worked with some some really well really well recognised advertisers both online and off so ford and betfair bacardi house of fraser honda ted baker pop chips virgin and so on and so after two years in print and for fairly obvious business reasons we decided to scrap the print magazine and take magnate online and in a way that was both the best and the worst thing that could possibly have happened to magnate it was the best because it allowed the business to survive for a longer time, right? Our overheads were lower, which means that, you know, we didn't need to go out of business so quickly. We were moving with the times and we were slowly growing our online following and our website traffic. But it was also the worst thing because once you remove the immediate pressure of things like print deadlines and any obvious direction from the business, Magnate suddenly stagnated. Did it exist? Yes, but were we doing very much? Not really. And in a way, uh, and I think it's fair to say now, in hindsight, that business kind of turned into a bit of a jolly for me. So here I was, this 18-year-old self-professed magazine editor, meeting and interviewing these really cool people, going out to incredible parties and getting invited to exclusive events, being given really interesting gadgets and wallets and all sorts to test out. I was living a fairly amazing life, but I lost the thread of how I brought that all back to business and I couldn't work out where my life started and where Magnate ended. Uh, it was all a blur and one which kind of stopped making money long before I stepped away. Uh, and so Magnate came to an end. Uh, Zach continued the business in a different capacity under the same name, which he's still doing now uh, fairly successfully from what I understand. So Magnate lives on just without me. 
so back then when Magnate came to an end, something else started to unfold in my life completely unrelated to business. A few years earlier, and I always remember this phone call, my dad phoned me and it was, it was I think 2014 and I just stepped away from giving a talk to some kids and I pick up the phone and he said something along the lines of it's all going to end tomorrow. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I must have missed some important context a few days later. But what my dad was telling me on the phone call that day is that the next morning he expected to lose his job. That's the same job that brought us to Corby. The same job that he had had for something like 16 years. The job that I and everyone else knew him by. The job that gave us the house that we lived in. He was going to lose it. Tomorrow. And he was right. The very next day, uh, my dad was put on garden and leave. Uh, for three months and lost his job and that was the beginning of the early rumblings of something far more profound Uh, but I wouldn't be able to connect the dots back to that for some years to come so a few months after he lost his job uh, we, we managed to find a new house and we moved into it but as the months went on in that new house something didn't feel right although we didn't talk about it at the time something was wrong with my dad He was forgetting the odd thing here and misplacing the odd thing over there. And as I think every every family in a situation like that does, we kind of passed it off. But things slowly got worse. Day by day, nothing changed. But month by month, something was definitely happening. Now, this was around sometime in 2016. My dad was unable to find work because of what he was going through. And my mum would stay at home almost every day away from work without telling anybody so that she could be by my dad's side to keep out, to keep an eye out for him because she could see that something was wrong, but there was no diagnosis yet. And no diagnosis meant no support. And no support meant two adults sat at home, unable to work, earning zero money and slowly watching things like the gas and the electric and the food run lower and lower. And in a way, those days are the darkest that I can remember, both figuratively and literally, because the lack of diagnosis at the time meant that we were stuck as a family in a bit of a limbo, without any real support or direction, but falling further and further into a problem that we couldn't put our finger on. And there's one day that I remember in particular, and I I genuinely think I will remember this day for the rest of my life, where um, I... So my parents weren't working, and at the time, my main source of income was freelance design work, right? And I hadn't been paid, and there was enough food in the cupboard, and I use the word food loosely here. We're talking like a tin of this and a tin of that, right? There was enough food in the cupboard for literally one more meal. There was nothing in the fridge, nothing in the freezer, And on that evening, thankfully, I managed to get a payment for some of the work I'd done. And I remember I went and bought, I think it must have been about £40 worth of food from Audi. And fuck me, that £40 worth of food has never felt so important. But it really, really was touch and go. To the point where, uh, I don't know where it is now, but it'll be on probably my iCloud backup somewhere. I have a photo somewhere of the fridge and the freezer from that day. Because as weird as it sounds... I had this almost this moment of self-awareness where I realized that actually this here right now today this is the bottom like it 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 could true it could get worse than this but it's probably not going to get any worse than this so I don't know it was weird I had to like for my own sake document that day so that I knew that we're not going back there but anyway in 2017 my dad was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's at the age of 57 and I think it's fairly obvious to say this, but I'll always remember uh, the day he was told. Uh, I was back at home, stood at the top of the stairs, listening to the nurse tell him. Uh, And as I heard those words come out of her mouth, it was a weird mix of emotions, because on the one hand, it was horrible. I'd see my granddad go through the same, and put very frankly, I know how things end up, right? But on the other hand, it it was kind of a weird feeling of relief that came over me, because... With a diagnosis, my dad was able to get the support he needed. And I mean the medical support and the financial support and the social support. And it just, it was it was this weird day where it was terrible, but it was also kind of good because it was addressing the inevitable. And I won't go into that much further, but let's just say this. Since, since that day, we've managed to live uh, a good few years of making memories and 
going on trips and days out and weekends away and holidays. Uh, and we've managed as a family to spend a lot of time together that honestly, we probably otherwise wouldn't have. So that's kind of the, the silver lining that I take away from that. Uh, as of today, my dad is getting by. Uh, anyone who knows someone with any form of dementia will know that they have good days and they have bad days and that the balance of those two kinds of days slowly tilts, but we're getting by. And I'll leave that there for now. So in parallel with all of that, over the same period of time, uh, I have been growing my current business. So right now, today, I'm the creative director of Dream, and we're a full-service marketing agency based in South Wales. And what we do is we help businesses grow. So me, alongside Richard and Alex, we've been working together since 2012. We started off as free freelancers who would kind of handwork to each other and slowly uh, get closer and closer. But for the last three or four years, uh, we've been working on and focusing on this business full time and it's growing. Our revenues are growing. Our notoriety is growing. Our customer base is growing. Our abilities are growing. The team is growing. It's a growing business. Now, I'm sure that in almost every future episode of this podcast, because it is very much a big part of my life right now, I'm going to talk about Dream. So I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail right now, but I guess that brings you up to speed with where I am professionally, creative director of Dream, marketing agency, growing very well. That's the summary. Um, And then I guess the last thing, the last strand of my life right now that should bring you up to date is a bit of a weird one. And it's about a book that I read around two years ago and the book is called The Slight Edge Uh, and if you follow me anywhere on social media you will know that that book has changed the way I look at life. Um, So The Slight Edge is about the fact that that any big thing in life is not achieved through huge actions you take but actually through smaller consistent habits like drinking enough water or going to the gym every day or getting eight hours of sleep each night and after reading that book, I made a bunch of changes in my life to to make it better, to, to make sure that I am the kind of person who is prepared to do what I need to do in life, to not have to go back to that place that I spoke about a minute ago, right? Because I know how easy it is to get there. And I also know the kind of person that I think I need to be to not go there again, right? And to continuously evolve. And... um There are a bunch of habits that I changed, a bunch of things that I changed in my life, but perhaps the most interesting and one that will no doubt crop up in future episodes of this podcast is the fact that uh, for the last 700 days, I haven't drank alcohol, not a drop, zero. So just after I turned 22, I stopped drinking completely and since then, haven't looked back. And uh, like I say, I'll go into that in more detail in a future podcast, but I promise you it is one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll go into all of that in future episodes, but habits seems to be the one thing that has taken me from the, the confused, unproductive, misfocused days of magnate, uh, into a really productive, focused, and I think it's fair to say able person today. And so that's it. That's, I really need to drink some water. One second. (laughs) I've just summarized 23 years of life without drinking any water, bear with. There we go. That's like some AMSR shit. Drinking water down a microphone. But yeah, that's it. That is the last 23 years of my life. Um, Summarised at breakneck speed. I'm sure that there are important things I've missed. I'm sure that there are important people I've missed. And if I have, I apologise. This is just a no-form version of my life. Uh, And the reason that I wanted to give you this context is because, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, this is going to be very much about the day-by-day and week-by-week life that I live and lessons that I learn and no doubt because of that because it's this evolving thing I'm going to be making lots of references back to things that have happened in the past or you know how is business going this week or why did I make that terrible mistake with Magnate that day or what's going on with my dad right and I think without any of that context lots of what I'm about to speak about in these future episodes wouldn't make sense so if you've managed to make it this far thank you um I hope my life isn't too boring. Hope you haven't switched off. But if you're still here, yeah, thank you. Um, Like I say, this is going to be a weekly thing. I'm committing right now to do this for the next 52 weeks. Some days it will be sat in the office like I am tonight with a nice microphone. Other times I'll be in a bloody 
Premier Inn somewhere in the middle of nowhere waiting to go to a meeting the next morning recording this on a phone. So it's going to be a little bit inconsistent. But the one thing that will be consistent is the fact that I am making the commitment to do this for 52 weeks at least to just kind of record and see where life goes. And if you listen along, I hope that you find some value from this. I hope that we can uh, share and talk together about the things that I go through because I'm sure that many people both my age and older and younger will be going through similar things, be it in business or life or family or whatever. And I feel like I'm going to find this quite therapeutic. And so if you do, please do get in touch. Uh, the easiest ways to reach me are on social media, which ironically I'm not using right now, but by the time this podcast goes out, it will be. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, I'm on both of those. It is Spooner Sean, which is S-P-O-O-N-E-R-S-E-A-N. And yeah, drop me a message. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Let me know what you think was good, what was bad. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. I really, look, this, this whole thing's going to be rough. There's no structure here. And that's mainly because there's no end game here. This isn't for some sort of ulterior business, business motive, me doing this. Dream has its own podcast for that. Like we will make money from that podcast. This one's for me. So it's not going to be finessed and it's not going to be tidy. It's just going to be honest and it's just going to be me talking. And so with that messy ending, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for listening. Please do drop me a message if you'd like to talk. And hopefully I will see you in seven days time back here. See you then. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 